Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush says it's time for his generation of politicians to step aside and make way for the next. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, the former candidate for the Republican nomination gives us his assessment of President Trump and talks about life in a family with two former presidents, his brother and his dad. Governor Wolves, good to see you always, and welcome, and thank you for doing this show. Thank you, Carlos. A joy to be with you. I've enjoyed uh, listening to your podcasts, and um, always good to be with you. Appreciate that. So appreciate that. I wish, I wish we kind of were in person. You know, you know that I'm a native Miami, and 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 so if we were there, I would force you to get me some good Cuban food, maybe some Nicaraguan food, uh, which has become a new favorite. But uh, but but this will have to suffice during these interesting times. Yeah, this is the beautiful time for Miami, as you remember. Um, it's 92 degrees right now, and I was watching the local news, and it says it feels like 104. So. Um, Maybe when, you, when when this is all over, we'll we'll have uh, we'll have a real meal, but maybe in February. Maybe in February. Yeah. No, I remember how hot it could get as a kid. Even we kids would uh, shrink from the sun a little bit, and you'd play for a little bit in the morning, and then somebody would 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 say uncle, and you'd go away for a couple of hours during kind of the heart of the heat of the day, and then you'd you'd come back out again in the mid afternoon. So I yeah I I I remember what August was like uh, growing up uh, in Miami. Um, 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 Governor, even though I know your story, uh, I feel like so well, uh, I feel like we've known each other almost 20 years now. I know for a lot of people, uh, they know your story from a little bit far away. Remind us, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Florida? Are you a Texan? Are you a Connecticut guy? How do you think about where you grew up? I was born in Midland, Texas uh, in 1953 when it was, it was uh, very different than it is today. And we moved when I was six years old to Houston and uh, lived there till basically till I got married. Went to the University of Texas, uh, went to a school called Andover, 
um, which is where I had the opportunity to meet my wife. Uh, we, I had an exchange program that was life altering really. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I met her in Leon, Guanajuato, Mexico as part of an Andover program. And, um, uh, and then went to the University of Texas, uh, got married when I was 21 and just started blowing and going. I, I, you know, it's funny, uh, you'll appreciate this, Carlos, when people ask for advice, young people, they come and my, my, the main advice that I give people these days is don't plan it out. Don't plan out your life. I mean, take advantage of the things that, uh, that are in front of you. It's the pursuit that really matters. And, and uh, I was so blessed to basically have one job that led to another, that led to moving to Miami, that led to getting involved in business and getting involved in politics. And had I been planning it, I would have probably just been stuck in place. And, and why do you think you didn't plan it? Do you think that was just your nature? Was that encouragement from mom and dad or from siblings? Or why did you... What, what led you down that? Because I've heard Oprah say something similar, that she's a deep believer in, in, in enjoying the journey and trusting your path a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, I was always independent, um, kind of quiet, independent, and um, wanted to do it my way. I'll tell you a story that I'm not proud of. Uh, I, I, uh, I told my, my parents in December that I was getting married on February 23rd and said it'd be great if you guys could come. They had not met Columba. So I, I was pretty independent, um, and my mother got all mad at me and said, "Look, I'm, we're not we're not having a wedding before I meet meet, meet my daughter-in-law," and then we were the first to get married in in our generation. So my mom came the weekend before our marriage in Austin, Texas, and we had a wedding of ten people, and uh, my mom and dad, my grandmother, my siblings, uh, Columbus uh, siblings. And um, we had our reception, the uh, reception dinner the, the night before was at the Green Turtle Restaurant. We got married at the Newman Catholic Center uh, and off we went. I went to work. I was working while I was going to school and I just never, I never sat quiet, I guess. Um, always felt like if you push hard and you, you know, you work hard, you can achieve great things. So I'm not sure I've achieved great things, but I, I do think too many young people particularly are very overly cautious about making, you know, gosh, I'm making the wrong mistake. I've, I've made a hell of a lot of mistakes in my life. You know, you, you, you gotta accept that as part of life. We're, we're all in, you know, we're all imperfect under God's watchful eye, but the key to success is doing it. If you think back about your biggest mistake, man, there's so many good things in what you just said that I wanna come back to, but, but I'll start here. If you think back about your biggest mistake and what you learned from it, um, and, and I'm not necessarily looking for a certain answer. I'm literally just curious hearing you say that. What would you, what do you count as your biggest mistake or one of your biggest mistakes? And what, if anything, did you learn from that? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that was a great learning experience was um, losing my race in 1994 for governor. It turned out to be an incredible blessing because it did give me a chance to pause and reflect on things. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. Carlos, I lost in a really close election, you may remember. And there were allegations that the uh, Governor Child's team did X, Y, and Z, and everybody's coming up and making me feel, you know, feeling sorry for me. And I finally said, stop it, you know? If I'd shown my heart, if I'd shown why I want to do this rather than just laying on the five-point plans on everything, um, I, I would have won. And it was a lesson in humility, really. I was really assured of myself, you know, all my ideas, I was righteous about them. And uh, losing that race was really helpful to be able to put a human context around the things I thought were important. 
And um, not just in you know running for office and governing, that lesson applies, but it, apl it applies in life too. And, and say more ab about losing and how you, A, found out that you lost, because we now are used to close elections. But I would say that there was a time in which there weren't as many close elections. Do you know what I mean? And yours was a close one. And now that I think about it in Florida, we've had a lot of close elections over the last 25 years. I think uh, Senator Scott has won three statewide races, two governor's races, and a Senate race, all by 1%. So I call him the one percenter when I see him. But, um, He's but, a one percenter for a couple of reasons. <laughs> for a couple different reasons, couple different reasons indeed. But, uh, but, but, but what do you, what did, you know, how did you learn that you lost and how did you handle the losing in that moment? In other words, did it take you a six month moment to regain your footing or, or what happened? So I, um, for whatever reason, the election results came back pretty quick and I, I was, I knew, I, you know, I knew the numbers and I didn't draw it out. I can't stand politicians that know they're going to lose, but they refuse to concede and they, you know, whatever, they, they think something weird, you know, can happen or, um, I, I called uh, Governor Childs to congratulate him in, at 10 o'clock. I called my parents who were with my brother who was running at the same time as governor of Texas to let them know. I, I, it turns out I called them um, right when they were going to declare victory down an elevator or something. Uh, it was like the worst moment. It just totally deflated my, my brother who was sad. He should have been excited about his win. He felt horrible for my loss. Um, and then, you know, I, we went home. I took my kids, my three kids and my, uh, my wife back, uh, back home to Pinecrest. And um, I'll never forget, actually, that we, the, the next day we went home in the morning and Governor Childs, who never lost an election, by the way, uh, was out on US-1, Dixie Highway, thanking people for his election. I stopped and congratulated him and, um, and then we went home. I mean, it was, uh, it was hard to lose, but you know, look, life goes on. It was uh, the, the lessons, it took me a while to really reflect on the loss uh, and re realize that I could have been a better candidate if I was a better person in effect. And, um, and thankfully I did. Thankfully I, I paused enough to do that. You, you know, I talked to your brother, I don't know if I told you, I was with your brother, uh, uh, President Bush last year, and, uh, and we talked for a while, and I talked to him a little bit about that time in 94, and his recollection was that everybody thought that you were gonna win and he was gonna lose, and that in fact, he thought part of the reason your parents were with him is that they expected to console him because he was also running for the first time for governor's race, whereas they were sure that Jeb was gonna win. Was that your memory? And, and did that end up changing family dynamics in, in any interesting ways? Not at all. Look, we both had to deal with the fact that our dad was president of the United States two years before. And we both knew that we had to earn it. Um, George ran an incredible race. He's got, he's got more discipline than me. So, uh, and he ran against a tough incumbent as well. Um, it was, uh, I was really happy for his election and, and uh, the fact that he won made, you know, my defeat a little bit easier to take it, to be honest with you. But that, that was the perception that somehow I had a better chance of winning. I, I, the other, you know, I do give advice to young people a lot. And the other advice I give when they come and say, I'm thinking about running for office, what do you think? And my first advice is always to find a bad candidate to run against because you have a better chance of winning. And um, Lawton Childs was an extraordinary candidate, it turns out. He, he ran, he never lost. He never lost an election. 
He uh, he connected well with people. He didn't like he didn't articulate policies that you know that wasn't his his thing. But he had a people knew he had a heart for him, and I think that's the first lesson. I mean, politics now is so different than it was back then. But I think you have to connect on a human level with people to know that you care. Um, we need to get back to that. I think a little bit. We need to have you know servant leaders and. Um, in Florida, at least they appreciated his service because he showed that he cared. If someone were to say to you that, and I realize, and I'm purposely saying it this way because I realize that that may not be most people's perception, but if someone were to say to you that President Trump, to his most ardent supporters, has a heart for people, and that that's been part of his success, that they feel that that he they're ex that he's excited about them. Does that sound right? Does that sound crazy to you? Does that sound like I'm misapplying, you know, the message that you're sharing? I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think it's a different form of connection that he brings. He brings, I'm on your side. I will fight for you. I will defend traditional values. I will not let them take take away our culture. Or, you know, there's it's it's a very different um, way of of leading for sure. I'll give you an example. I I. Um, when I ran in 98, I vowed to, uh, I said, I told the team, look, I'll do the fundraising at night. I'll do the th things that, that, you know, candidates have to do, but I want to wander around a bit. Uh, I want to learn. I want to listen. So I went to dependency courts. I sat for five hours one, one day with Kate Carney, who ended up becoming the secretary of the Department of Children and Families. Uh, and I, I watched the child welfare system unfold for five hours. It was breathtaking. It was it was, uh, it was, you know, it was scary. It was really, it made a huge impression on me. Um, that's what I'm talking about. That's my version of, you know, listening and learning and having empathy for the plight of people, trying to understand them. I don't think President Trump, uh, that's not his skill set, but he does have a connection with a group of people that, that um, is powerful for sure. There, there's no question that um, they, you know, he's not gonna lose that base support. It is, there's a bond there that will last forever. You know, it's interesting, Governor, as I hear you talk again, I forgot how much you love policy. And I would say that as many political leaders as I've been around, the three that I think have enjoyed policy the most, and, and, and I mean policy in a very vibrant, alive, it matters way, is I felt like both President Clinton, but even more so, I think Secretary Clinton really loves policy and loves it and and you and and I forgot how much you love it am I right that that, that that that's something that still is in your heart and still is close to you absolutely and um, unlike uh, President Clinton who's a total extrovert uh, I'm an introvert too so I like you know I like to read I like to think I'd like to uh, to learn um, and there's all sorts of things that to this day yes this more this this morning I was talking to a guy who's been an advocate for social services in the state for, geez, 40 years. And he told me, about, gave me an update on our child welfare system. We, we were the first to move to a community-based care model. And Florida leads the nation in the number of adoptions out of foster care. We lead the nation in the number of uh, kids that are 18 to 21 that are going to college that are out of the foster care system. And all of that started, you know, when I was governor and it started out a tragedy. Policy matters, and you know you can move the needle if you stick with it. And so, um, the, the moments of my public life that I most enjoyed 
we're having a chance to help people that really should have been in the front of the line and we're in the back. You, you know, um, analyze yourself a little bit because you and I are also both sports junkies and sports fans a little bit. So play a little Mel Kuyper, a little Todd McShay here and analyze your two terms as, uh, as governor. You know, what did you get right in your mind? And, and be as fair-minded as you can. I, I, I realize that, that you're a little bit biased here, but, 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 but what do you feel like you got right? And what do you, as a thoughtful person who loves Florida, who loves Floridians, who thinks about policy on a global level, what, what did you not get right? Or at least what would you have done meaningfully differently if you were to get a fresh chance again? Yeah, I think revamping our child welfare system was something that we got right. And it was a bottom-up effort. The law that we advocate and the funding was the catalyst for it, but it, it happened because of really committed people in, in the communities of the state. Uh, the programs for the developing disabled, people have forgotten this, but we were about ready to lose the power to deliver those services by a federal judge. And we revamped those programs and eliminated a 27,000 person waiting list. I'm really proud of that. Uh, and that, those programs continue on, which is, which is good. And then the education system, turning it upside down and creating accountability along with parental choice. And uh, those reforms continue to this day. What we got wrong um, in terms of policy, I would say, you know, we, we didn't get much wrong. I made mistakes. Um, we implemented, we ended affirmative action, Carl, you probably remember that. Uh, we eliminated using race as a criteria for admissions or for procurement. It was the right thing to do. It was implemented the wrong way. And it created a lot of wounds. And had I had the chance to, I would have done it, but I would have done it in a different way to bring people along a little at a, at a pace that, that um, you know, people still, still would feel connected about the righteousness of the idea. The net result was good, but the turmoil that was un unnecessary and it was a serious, um, serious problem. Um, our juvenile justice system was, was reformed, but we never quite got it right. Uh, and I would have loved to have been able to, to implement, you know, reforms across the board that would have been sustainable there. I don't know, we did, I'll tell you what, Florida, not, 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 not because of me, but Florida was a leader uh, in uh, preparing for hurricanes and natural disasters. We did it really well. It broke my heart to see uh, what happened in Katrina, but when you compare what we did with our eight hurricanes and four tropical storms to what Louisiana was capable of doing at that time, I mean, it, it, leadership does matter and training for these things and, making sure that you're you know, all in was really important. And I'm proud of Craig Fugate, who became President Obama's um, FEMA director. He, for, for most of the time I was governor, he ran our operation. We had a great team and I'm proud of that. I, you know, there are other things, I, I think taking care of senior citizens in a community-based way. We started that, I would have accelerated that, seeing what I, what, knowing what I know now. Institutional care is not appropriate anymore. We have technologies that can, help people stay in their homes with their loved ones. Uh, there's all sorts of new ways of doing things that, that uh, back then seemed impossible to be able to implement. Um, Governor, how do you think about this moment we're in around uh, racial reckoning? Uh, I remember growing up in Miami and I remember just how terrified my mom was of me going to my favorite spot, Dunkin' Donuts, in the middle of the night because she literally worried that what has happened to so many unarmed black men could happen to me. And you and I know that, sadly, long before the country was talking about it, 
those sort of things were happening in Miami and we had, you know, we had real unrest around it. How, how are you thinking about this moment? You know, do you, do you see a bigger problem um, uh, and do you see fixes? You know, how do you, how do you see what's, what's happening right now? Um, what I see is heartbreaking. And the I, back to sports, the the comments uh, by co- commentators on television, the athletes themselves have been really moving. Um, I think they've handled this spectacularly well. I think they've handled this moment with a lot of grace and dignity, and it is heightening awareness of the the needs to stick with solutions. Um, the protests are great. It's part of American tradition, but we need to get to, to a suite of solutions to deal with uh, police reform. I think education reform is a huge issue as it relates to equity issues. You look at the number of, of people of low income in this now not being able to access education because they have neither a device nor broadband. And in the, in the pockets of affluence of our country, Florida and other places, uh, people are actually thriving in this environment because they're protected and because they have access to everything. That's wrong. So if we're serious about equity issues and justice issues, then we need to reform the things that haven't been reformed uh, to the extent that they could. And so I hope state legislatures don't wait till March for having conversations about immunity issues, about training issues, about transparency and accountability for the police. Uh, most, most law enforcement officers want those kinds of things because uh, they're proud of their profession. We shouldn't, we shouldn't wait. I mean, this is, this is the moment, and I think we should, we should act on it. It is heartbreaking to see uh, these, uh, these acts of uh, these killings. It's just, it's heartbreaking. I'm reading a book right now, Carlos, about the 1980 McDuffie riots. The McDuffie riots started because an a, a African-American was killed by police and they covered it up. And uh, the book is, it's reminded, I I didn't remember all this. There was systemic problems with the Miami City Police. Uh, It's much better now, but you have to be vigilant about these things. You cannot create a culture of of non-disclosure, a culture of allow, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, allowing uh, people of color to be either killed or, or consistently discriminated against. You, you know, Governor, I, I'm glad you're saying because that that McDuffie, he was an ins- he was he was a former military man himself, who was an insurance man who they trailed into his home, into his garage, beat him to death in his garage, um, uh, and then, as you said, covered it up, and then were let off uh, by a jury, I think, in Tampa at the time, and that really was a thing that completely rattled my mom. I mean, uh, for her having kids and to think that. You never want to think it could happen at all, but but that level of it, I think, made her really unmoored in a, in a really worrisome way. But but the point you make about it being systemic, I now worry that that it is systemic, and that and that it's one of those things that if you if we don't admit that it's systemic, that we have a systemic problem with our police, that we ultimately won't fix it. That we'll keep doing little things, and every month, every two months, we'll end up sadly having another conversation. Do you see it as, as a systemic problem with police, which doesn't mean that every police officer is bad, but that there's enough of a problem here that it's clearly systemic? And maybe more importantly, what would you do if you were in the White House right now? If, if, if we were talking to uh, uh, President Bush 45, you know, what would you be doing in this moment to move us in a different direction? I, I think it's, it's systemic uh, 
there, and there are best practices to show otherwise. In other words, there are police departments that have taken best practices, applied them, made it an integral part of who they are. And those are the, those are, those are the lights that we should, we should put a light on that and shine it and give that as the example to those that are having significant problems. Uh, a president can heal wounds, can talk about this in a way that draws people together. Um, I, I think in normal times, that's, that's what presidents, uh, that's what they're obligated to do. It's their responsibility to do it. A president can um, ask the Justice Department to investigate this. In my experience as governor and watching this unfold um, now, these investigations take way too long. Um, you know, you want, you want due process to exist for everybody. And so it's appropriate to do the proper investigations, but man, um, it takes way too long uh, and it's hard for, and it's not transparent. So I think the Justice Department should, uh, should be called on to be able to provide support to accelerate a, the proper investigation so that uh, there can be a little bit more finality. Because as you, I mean, I think you agree, I mean, all this uncertainty just, just accelerates people's doubt about um, these institutions that you know, we have to rely on. And no one wants to have rioting in the streets. No one wants to have all this uncertainty. By the way, politically, um, it's the, the candidates that are gonna be advocating law and order will, will win in the short run because of this. You know, this is a, uh, when people are insecure and they feel scared, just as your mom did uh, as, as well, it has an impact on how you decide who you're gonna vote for, right? So we're in the midst of a hyper-political environment, in the midst of uh, racial unrest, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an economic downturn, the likes of which we've never experienced. That's, that, that is the proverbial kerosene on the fire. Do, do you think Trump is gonna win re-election? I don't know. You know, I, I wouldn't discount him. I've, I've, I've been to that movie before <laughs> as a candidate. Uh, he, he is, uh, he has a, uh, the ability to come back for sure. He's not winning right now, but he, he could win. You know, it, a lot of it depends on what's gonna happen here in the next 100 days or less. It's, um, there's, there's a lot that could change. If there's a, a belief that a vaccine's coming, that would help. If there's uh, you know, more of a economic recovery, it's hard to tell if that's gonna happen, but that certainly would help. Uh, if the debates go one way or the other, that would change the dynamics of this. You know, so it's a, it's work in progress. I can't predict it. And I'm, I'm, I'm out of the predicting business. I'm actually more or less out of politics. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I believe leadership matters, as you're saying, and who's in office matters. And I was uh, watching Selma again recently. I don't know if you remember the movie Selma at all. And uh, you were reminded the various ways in which politics plays out and elections play out. And, and so you try and learn from that. Governor, what do you? What will you tell your grandchildren and others when you look back at 2016 and that race? You know, what did you do right? What would you do differently if you had the chance again? And why, in the end, did someone maybe as unexpected, at least unexpected to me, as Donald Trump become the 45th Commander in Chief? Well, um, I guess what I did right was I was true to who I am. I didn't. I didn't play the game that you know twist myself in a pretzel to be something I'm not. Um, which meant <laughs> that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't gonna be an effective candidate in a time of deep angst and anger where um, saying here are the solutions to the problems we face, no one wanted to hear my five point plans in effect. Um, uh, and that's why I wanted to run. I wanted to, I wanted to run to serve. Um, I didn't wanna run to make a point. I didn't wanna run to garner uh, you know a twitter following i didn't want to run to be a cable news guy or something I, I i believe that we need to fix a few really big things and that the country can rise up that more people have a chance to 
live a purposeful life. That's, that was my motivation, and that wasn't what people wanted to hear. So while I was true to myself, the timing of my candidacy uh, and the legacies of my name, my last name, all that stuff plays in where there was a feeling that uh, we need to try something different. So let's, let's take the guy who's completely, you know, unconventional and we'll ride, we'll ride him uh, to see what happens. Um, and so it's understandable on, on one level. And, and then, you know, we had what, 25 candidates or something running. So it, it uh, President Trump as a candidate basically garnered 80% of all the attention because he said outrageous stuff. You know, he, he was larger than life and all that. And the rest of us garnered 20% of the rest of the attention. It was a difficult uh, kind of exercise in that regard. But I give him credit and you know, I, I, I got my butt kicked uh, and I give him credit for understanding the electorate in that, in that period. Um, I was hopeful that he would take that election and try to be a little more, you know, show a little more reconciliation and, and more understanding of the divisive nature of our society right now and how that in, in America just doesn't work. Um, that hasn't happened. And why do you think it hasn't happened? Do you think it's his nature? Uh, do you think it, why hasn't it happened? It's his nature. It's them and them versus us. This is his, and it's, it's all about him. It's, it's his, you know, he gets attacked, which he does. He gets seriously attacked. He takes it personal. He fights back. It's just this vicious cycle. Um, there isn't a, there isn't a moment where he can think that maybe I can rise above this and find ways to unite. There have been times where Democrats and Republicans have come together, um, restorative justice being one of them, which I'm, I'm really happy that, that um, left and right converged on that particular issue. But there's not many other places where that's happened. And presidents are normally the catalyst for that. Do you think that, are, are you thinking about endorsing Biden or will you endorse Biden like Governor Kasich and, and some of the national security folks did? No, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm really out of politics. The next uh, candidate that I will actively support is my son, who is a statewide elected official in Texas. Whether he runs again, I don't know, but um, that's where I'll, I'll expend whatever energy I have to help him. He's a great, great guy. He's not a kid anymore. He's 43, I think, or 44. Um, has done a great job in his, uh, his uh, public service. And, you know, maybe he'll run for lieutenant governor or governor. I'm, 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 I want him to do that. If he, if he wants to, I'll be there by his side. What's he like? Is he, is he very much like you? Is he very much like your brother, your dad? Who in your mind does he resemble the most in terms of his, his political approach? Um, I'd say he's a mixture of all of us. He's a lot, he's a lot better looking than me because he's got a lot of his mom in him. And uh, he is, uh, he's charismatic and he's got a, you know, he's got a good mind and a big smile and people, people are drawn towards him. Why did he choose Texas instead of Florida? I know he grew up in Florida. What, what made him choose Texas? Well, he went to, uh, he, he fell in love with a Texan in law school, University of Texas law school. He went to Rice and Amanda, uh, he met her at the Texas law school and Amanda is as Texas as Texas gets. And so if he fell in love with a Texan, I don't know if you know, <laughs> they don't let you go. They're, so they stayed, uh, they stayed in, in uh, they went to Fort Worth and then now in Austin. So interesting. And, and, and what about um, uh, you and your brother when you guys get together? Because I know how close you are. 
What do you guys talk about in terms of, uh, of, of politics or policy these days? By the way, when I was with him, he wanted to talk about painting. So we talked a lot about painting and a little bit about foreign policy. But what do you, what do you and the former president talk about when you're together? Actually, that's, that, I, those are the two things in sports that um, although he's not, he's more of a baseball fan. I've kind of lost interest in baseball and like uh, like basketball and the uh, and hopefully college sports. Hopefully they'll come back. But we t he's a, he's he's passionate about his painting. I've helped him. He's he, a book. He's done a portrait book for wounded veterans, which I think was the largest selling, highest selling uh, portrait book in the United States ever. Uh, that was quite successful. Now he's doing one on immigrants. And um, I helped him recruit a few of the immigrants, which I'm, I was happy to contribute. That, that book comes out in March. It's gonna be a phenomenal book to remind people of the massive contributions immigrants have made to this country, um, which is something that we, we, in order for us to be a competitive nation, we have to take advantage of our strengths. And this is so unique, uniquely American, this ability to take people from everywhere and have a shared identity that all this diversity then becomes a catalytic converter for just you know prosperity, growth, innovation, creativity, all the good stuff that comes from us interacting amongst each other in a you know in a chaotic way. We're not a get-in-line country. We're not you know there's nothing monolithic about America at its best. We have to have a, a have to have a set of shared values. But immigration done right is a huge advantage, and George believes that as I do, and. Um, so this book hopefully will make a small contribution as maybe there'll be a chance to reform our immigration laws next year. You know, um, Governor, that's interesting that you say that because I, I remember again now, I remember uh, the president talking about compassion and conservatism. I remember that he attracted at the time, I think it was a record 40% of the Latino vote, I think when he ran uh, in the first time in 2000. Um, uh, I remember how pro-immigration you were. Is that ever something, even in a quiet way, that you've talked to President Trump about? I mean, have you ever tried to engage uh, with him on that very kind of fundamental issue? No, I haven't. I've talked to some of his, the people around him about, because the president, um, like Democrats, use immigration as a wedge issue, and so you want to keep it alive, I think, politically. But he's, he's taken positions that would suggest that a path to legal status, um, dealing with the DACA kids, moving towards a merit-based system where, where the best and the brightest can come with greater ease, all those things he's expressed individually over the last four years. But when it comes to actually putting together a proposal and finding common ground, he hasn't taken that step. Uh, President Obama had the chance to do it as well and committed to do it and had a majority in the Senate and the House in his first two years and didn't do it either. I don't know. I, I think D.C. views these things as uh, political uh, opportunities rather than something that is, in my mind, much more important, which is how do we how do we how do we compete? How do we uh, create a, a, an environment where people can succeed in life? And immigration can play a constructive role in that regard. It's not the only thing we need to do, but a, uh, a reform system could yield far better results than we get now. Governor, talk to me a little bit about education, which I know you're passionate about, that you've remained uh, uh, committed to. Are you hopeful that our education system can, quote unquote, make up for some of the systemic inequities that are there? Because there's some who would say, yes, it can, and others who would say, no, the system's too rigged. And, and it's a false hope to believe that fixing the schools is really going to 
allow a wide set of people a reasonable shot at the American dream. What do you say to those folks who say, I like where your heart is, but I think your head is wrong. I don't think that's nearly enough to, to make a dent. The first thing I'd say to them is, well, what's your solution? I mean, if, if, you, if you assume, if you default to the position that there's nothing we can do to assure that a kid living in poverty will have a fighting chance to be successful in this country, first of all, it defies history uh, in many ways. And it's the most defeatist, pessimistic position that you can take. I, I vote for bias towards action. Make sh let's try. Let's try. I mean, if we have a divide right now where we're forcing, you know, Miami-Dade hasn't started, they won't start till maybe September 15th, October 1st in school. And they, for three months, the kids were in, at home, you know, in March, April, and May. The learning, the drop in learning because of uh, some kids being unable to access education is going to have an impact on them for the rest of their lives. Why not make that a national calling to resolve this um, rather than just the same, well, life's unfair, there's systemic elements of this, will never allow people to be successful. I just, if, even if that is, has some degree of truth to it, we have to try. We have to try to fix this stuff. Um, because the gaps in learning are so, are, are, are so dramatic and have such a dramatic lifetime impact on, on people. And it, it's going to create greater and greater social uh, strife in this country uh, that we have to resolve it. And I, there are ways to resolve it. And, and so talk to me about that. What would be, if, again, if you were in office right now, what would be two or three of the central things that you would want done in order to make the education system dramatically stronger and better especially for the poorest kids? Well, I think the digital infrastructure um, issue is really important because it's also, think about it, Carlos, you're working from home, right? I'm working from home. A lot of people can work from home, but if you don't have broadband access, you're not going to have an opportunity for a job that you could do at home during this period and maybe going forward. So it's an eco economic opportunity. It's a health issue and it's certainly an education issue. That is a concrete, tangible thing that we can do as a nation to be able to bring uh, equity uh, uh, to, uh, to America. Secondly, um, we've proven this in Florida. We should have uh, an I'm not kidding gate at the end of third grade. If you can't read by the end of third grade, you should not go to fourth grade. And we ought to have a pre-K to three strategy to make sure that every teacher can teach, knows how to teach reading, and that there is a command focus on dealing with these gaps at their earlier age. And in Florida, we did that. And we, we created the first in the nation, no social promotion policy. We had 15% of our third graders held back the first year that we implemented this. And then subsequent years, that, that number dropped dramatically because we created programs, we did summer school, we, we taught teachers, we put reading coaches in schools. There has to be a national priority for this, but implemented state by state to be serious about it. Um, that would be something. I think parents, low-income parents uh, particularly, should be empowered to make choices for their kids. Right now, you have affluent parents that are saying, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hire a teacher and I'm gonna have a pandemic pod. I'm gonna have five people, we're gonna test them, we're gonna participate, we have the wherewithal to do this, and we're going to teach our kids. Well, they're not, parents that don't have money don't have that choice. Maybe we should open up uh, options for parents. The idea that somehow, and I've heard this so many times as governor and as a candidate, well, these people don't know how to make choices. That is BS. 
The idea that somehow because you're, you're of low income, that you can't make this, you don't love your child with your heart and soul, that if you get the right information, you can't make a choice that's, that meets the needs, both public and private, by the way, um, that we should open up our systems to empower parents. We should have real accountability. And then we should make sure that a high school diploma means that you're actually college ready or and or have a, have a skill that, makes, that allows you to get a job that can give you uh, above median wage over the long haul. Those are just simple things that we could do that um, some states are doing. Uh, and the states that do them, by the way, have actually had greater learning gains and have had some impact on the achievement gap. Governor, I know you were close to Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, and I think if I remember right, you told me you were one of the people who championed her for that role, or, or at least uh, at least was a supporter of her in that role. But she's come under a fair amount of criticism, maybe for not doing some of these things that you're recommending. Uh, um, grade her a little bit, if you will, and be as candid as you can, knowing that, that she's a friend of yours. But, 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 but give me an honest assessment of how, how Secretary DeVos has done. Well, it's, it's kind of unfair. Um, first of all, she got, she got off to a bad start. I don't think she was briefed properly for her confirmation hearings. Um, it was a chaotic time in the Trump administration. I don't think they did a very good job transitioning to the presidency. And she, was a, uh, she ended up you know, getting, making a bad first impression. Um, her job is to advocate the things I described, not to implement them. Her job is not, you know, we're, we're not, when a secretary of education is not the superintendent of all schools. Um, this is a bottom-up country, and we have 13,000 school districts, policies made at the state level and implemented at the local level. And, and she's been a strong advocate of local control and policies at the state level that could enhance learning, particularly for those that have been left behind. And I think she's, she's done a good job in that regard. I, I didn't expect her to, to be uh, running the school system up in Washington, D.C. That's the last thing that I think we need. I'm, I'm more comfortable with Alberto Car Carvalho, the superintendent of the Miami-Dade schools running schools here than anybody, even if I like them and, and respect them in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, Governor, I'm going to move you a little bit to sports because you and I both love sports a little bit. And uh, um, I know at one point you were involved, I think, with the NFL. And someone told me recently that there was a moment when you could have become commissioner. Is that right? Did I did I hear that right? Uh, well, it's I was uh, when Taglibu stepped down, the names that came up um, I was one of those names, and I think actually the the um, the Florida owners were touting me amongst their peers. But it was nine months left for my last year as as governor. I just I didn't uh, I felt uncomfortable about leaving, and it would have required going to New York, which uh, at the time I mean I love Florida. I just it wasn't the right th wasn't the right time for me. And then you know then I saw Goodell's making forty million a year. <laughs> 10 years later, I'm going, gosh, maybe I should have had a different view. <laughs> That's a tough job, but 40 million compensates for a tough job, don't you think? It certainly can, it certainly can. Talk to me again about some of the athletes. Were you a supporter of Kaepernick from the very beginning, or did you come to appreciate his, uh, his stance only later on? I'd say later on. I'll tell you what I, what I do admire. I admire athletes that don't just make a point, don't just take a stand, don't just use their platform but who sacrifice. That's, that's the, you know, the difference between the, you know, the, the pig and the chicken and the breakfast experience. Kaepernick gave bacon, didn't give an egg, and just, you know, everything was fine. He, he lost his career by standing on principle. Whether I agree or disagree with using 
the the um, kneeling for the uh, national anthem is not as relevant as my respect for people that are prepared to lose something for something they think is right. We need more of that. Uh, and there's not a lot of it. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of people kind of getting in the front of the parade. There's a lot of people on Twitter chirping about stuff. But you've got to respect a guy who was at the top of his game and who lost that because he stood on principle uh, and was, was ostracized. And he's not coming back. I mean, he's, it's hard to imagine after four years, right? He's been gone four years. So he's, he's moved on, but he lost a lot when he did that. He did. It, 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 uh, um, uh, an incredible sacrifice. And it's hard to believe it was only four years ago. If I'm honest, it feels like it was longer. Uh, than that, but but it was only only four four years ago, Governor. What do you say to people? I've heard a lot of people say to me that they wish more people would do versions of Colin Kaepernick, meaning take risks, speak out, and and they look at Senator Romney and they appreciate what he has done in this moment uh, to some extent, and they say I want more people to do that. What I'm sure they are calling you and they are saying to you. This is a moment, the country is at a turning point. This is not just partisan, there's something bigger here. What do you hear when you, when you hear that? Do you hear that, that, that you do have a, there is a moral imperative, there's a need for you to step back on the field, to be pulled back into it? Or how do you, how do you think about a moment like this? I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to get pulled back in uh, because I gave it my all and I didn't win. And it's you know it's time to move on. You don't just linger. Um, there's other things that I can do. The Education Reform Foundation that I run, I can make a, a difference, and and I, I try my best to do so. Um, but there are points where you have to stand up. When Steve uh, King says the outrageously ugly, nasty, white supremacist uh, garbage that he spewed out on a regular basis, someone you know people need to stand up. My son. Uh, stood up for a, a Muslim vice chairman of the Tarrant County Republican Party who was being purged out of the Republican Party in a volunteer position because they, they believed that the, he had dual, as an American citizen, he had dual loyalties because he was Muslim. That's, those kinds of things I think it's really important to, particularly if it's on your team. Look, the Democrats don't do a very good job of this either. We should, when people say outrageous things, when they express views that are just inconsistent with the founding of this country, the greatness, the goodness of our country, uh, it doesn't matter who says it, they, they should be called out. And um, I think President Trump is deserving of criticism uh, on, a, on a pretty regular basis for saying things that are inappropriate, that are divisive, that are hurtful. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not a never Trumper. He's done some things that I support as well. Uh, and and I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to, uh, to congratulate him. I think the UAE-Israel deal got no attention, but it's a, it could be a game-changing um, event that could bring about peace uh, with Palestine and Israel. There's a lot of positive things that he's done, but they're, they're overwhelmed by um, preying on people. Uh, and I think we need to get back to a more civil way of, of, uh, of dealing with politics. And the first step is to say, when you, you know, when someone on your team does something outrageous, call them out. Don't always be the hypocrite that blames, you know, does, when someone on the other team does the exact same thing, your head explodes. You, you have a duty to, to do the same thing when it's someone on your team. We don't do that anymore in DC at least, very seldom.
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Who are young politicos besides George P. who you admire? Um, who should we keep an eye on? Give me young. Explain young. How old? <laughs> That's, that definition has changed you know for what? me I'm, now. I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to give a nice broad definition. You play with it any way you want, but 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 I but but I do feel like we're moving into a new era, right? I feel like I call this the new '60s that we're about to enter into, and so I'm curious not only about new technology and about new norms, but but also about 
maybe new leaders? Because as you said, leadership matters. Are, are there any, any young folks or, or young, uh, young's the wrong word. Are there any interesting politicos out there that you wish would play a bigger role, whether they're on the left, the right, in the middle, or, or who knows where? Um, I think Ben Sass in the Republican Party is someone to watch. He's intellectually solid, uh, has a, you know, he's, he's got Midwestern values that kind of eke out. I mean, it's, it's so clear that he's not a, one of one of you guys at the coastal elites. Uh, he's, uh, he's from Nebraska. I think, I think he has a certain appeal. Uh, he speaks his mind. I, I like him. Um, you know, look, there are, there are a lot of young people, but to, to the broader point, I would say that people my age ought to get off the stage. We've had our, we've had our chance. Um, the idea that you're having a presidential election with a 74 or five-year-old uh, incumbent and a 78-year-old challenger is, is it, it's, th this is clearly a transition to something. And I think it's time for the next generation to take over. Uh, and, and you brought up a really interesting point, which is the 60s created a lot of tumultuous times for sure. And the counterculture became the dominant culture of American society. And it's run its course, it's exhausted. Um, whatever benefits have accrued and all of the negatives, I think, continue and linger. And so the first thing that I would hope for is not a new generation of leaders that I could name for you. I would love to see a cultural change, a, 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 a new counterculture to what the norm is. Uh, and out of that, politics will change. There's great examples. The 60s is not the only time when we had big transitional changes in our society. Uh, and, and so it's, we're, we're, we're I, I agree with you. I think you're, you said this. I think we're at a point now where all of this is going to emerge. In five years from now, we're going to be looking back and saying, there's some, you know, we're different now. And I hope it means that we're more loving and caring with one another. I hope it means that we, that we value family and we value the things that are, that are a lot more important, that we're less vulgar, that we're more focused on solving problems rather than making a point, um, and, that, and that, that, we're, that we're a bottom-up country again. We've kind of outsourced most, most of the things we deal with you know, to DC and these, these places. Then we get frustrated that the institutions don't work. I think we need to get back to the way our country has been successful, which is a bottom-up way trying a thousand different things. You know, that's what that's what makes us so unique and so different. Um, uh, Governor, two last questions, then we're gonna do a, a rapid fire to close out. Um, Governor, I often ask about love stories on this show um, and, and you quickly referenced your own, but tell us again how you met your wife and, uh, and where are you guys a few years down the road? So I was 17 years old and I was in an exchange program in Mexico, Leon, Guanajuato, Mexico. That's my wife, by the way, the Romero Brito picture. And uh, this is, this is, this will sound, the, women like this story more than men for some reason. Maybe you could explain it to me. So a, after mass in all colonial towns in Spain for the you know, six centuries, there were, you would walk, the woman chaperoned and the man going counterclockwise. And that's how young men and women would meet and eventually marry. Well, I met my wife driving around the town, the town square of Leon. And I was, I was there um, as a young student and I fell in love with her. I met her, I, I saw her and fell in love with her, figured out how to meet her like three days later. And, and I knew I wanted to marry her. It was wild. Uh, I was like madly in love. I lost 20 pounds. I couldn't think of anything other than her. 
She didn't feel the same way about me, but eventually she, you know, she kind of got to the point where she, she said that it, all of the craziness of marrying someone from Texas and all that kind of subsided. And we got married when she was 20 and I was 21. And that was, uh, that was a long time ago. So I, I met her 48 years ago and it's, the romance is just as good now as it was then. And, and, and what secrets do you impart to your kids? What have you learned about uh, keeping a marriage alive that long? That, that's a real amount of time. You know, I think you gotta, you gotta uh, first of all, she, she's, she's spectacular. So this is no, no sacrifice, but I, um, you, you can't win every, every argument. You gotta concede, you gotta, you gotta surrender a lot. And uh, I've learned how to do that better now. So um, I support her in her decisions and her efforts. And I, I try to empower her because she's everything I need. So it's, um, after a while you just kind of get into a rhythm and pace and my advice is not to change it. And Governor, what would have happened to you if you had not uh, won that second election? You know, I would have gone back probably to the real estate business that, that uh, I had built with my friend and incredible business guy, Armando Codina. Uh, I probably would have stayed more involved in local civic issues here in, in Miami. Um, and I would have been closer to home, I guess, that's for sure. Uh, but thankfully, just like when I met, you know, the chance to serve has opened up all sorts of opportunities. The, marrying my wife uh, was the reason why I moved to Miami. I wanted my children to grow up in a bi, you know, multicultural kind of existence that was open. My kids didn't speak English. We, went, we lived in Venezuela, moved back to Houston in 1980. Um, I, f I didn't feel comfortable with my kids living in Houston. Now Houston is like the most international city, you know, in the country. But back then, it just was, un I was uncomfortable. Um, they, they were learning English. Uh, and uh, I felt like Miami was a better place for them. And I was right about that. So interesting. So, so you're saying part of it was race and part of it was language. You weren't sure that, that Houston in those days was ready for the kind of interracial, intercultural marriage and family you had. And I look, it, it changed very quickly. Houston is so amazingly international now, but back then it was, it was a Southern town, basically. The other reason I wanted to leave, which was ludicrous, uh, if you think about it, was I wanted to get out from my dad's shadow. <laughs> which in retrospect was not really solid thinking because his shadow didn't end at the Houston city limits, you know? He was, he was just elected vice president. But I've always found comfort in trying to do it my way, you know, taking my own path and moving to Miami was part of that. And it was a blessing because uh, once I got to Miami, then I got to love Florida too. I love that, I love that. Um, I'm gonna take you into a little rapid fire. I'm gonna hit you with a wide variety of things, a little bit of a Rorschach test, and I'd love to hear what immediately comes to your mind. Uh, first question, your favorite music? Uh, soul music, 60s. Nice, any bands? In Sam and Dave. Love that, love that. Uh, your favorite book? My favorite book, uh, the last favorite book is Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley. Very nice, and I like her a lot. She's a very thoughtful education writer. That's a, that, that's a nice call. Um, uh, most interesting country you've ever visited? Wow, I visited a ton of them. Um, gosh, I would say Japan. Because? It's a, it's, it's a incredibly elegant culture, but with challenges because they, they're not open. They're the opposite of us in many ways. They're not an open society there. 
They're very, but their, their culture uh, is elegant and beautiful. Um, most interesting thing you learned from your parents, either or both? My dad, to write thank you notes. My, my, my mom, the, the passion for reading. Rank yourself as a parent. Uh, what did you get right? What would you want to do over? What would you want to mulligan on? Um, I, I think I've been a pretty good parent by the outcomes, uh, but in the, in the teenage years, you got to be more connected. You can't give teenagers freedom. As, as PJ O'Rourke once said, it's like giving a, giving a 16 year old a bottle of bourbon, the keys, the Maserati and tell them to have a good time. I mean, you've, you got to be, you got to stay connected with your kids. Um, and I would, I was, I was blowing and going, working, doing a lot of things. Uh, and, and that was a mistake. Should have stayed connected closer. I say global ranking, uh, global rankings of education, and you say what? U.S. is mediocre. China, the Asian countries are dominant. Interesting. That's not always the perception, though. I, I bet you here in the U.S., a lot of people's perception is that we're higher up the curve. Oh, absolutely. We we're in every survey. Uh, there's an OECD test, the PISA test. We rank, you know, 30 out of 60 countries. We're we're literally in the middle of the pack. Uh, but when you when you rank when you ask students where they think we rank, we rank number one by a long long side, long side. And, and in, you know the Chinese and the Koreans think that they're way in the back, and yet they rank in in terms of the PISA test at the highest. Interesting. Maybe there's a there's we're really strong. It's feeling good about ourselves. <laughs> Not so good about reading and doing math. Uh, I was going to say there's a lesson in there for us. Um, uh, um, I say reparations. You say what? I'd say reconciliation. I think we need to reconcile our differences. I, I don't feel we have to solve these problems. I'm not sure reparations would do it. There's a lot more work necessary. Would you consider it as part of uh, a solution or you, you say no altogether? Look, if it was part of a package that helped us understand our past, uh, that helped us deal with the issues of poverty in this country, uh, that, deal, that deal with income inequality in a meaningful way, um, certainly, I mean, it's worth considering, but those issues are the ones that I think we need to focus on. Reparations itself won't solve the challenge of a child growing up in America today with disadvantages. I say the most interesting or consequential technology of the next 20 years, and you say what? I think it's the convergence, it's artificial intelligence and the convergence of, of big data analytics along with it is going to create an explosion of innovations, the likes of which I can't describe. But I, I, I'm, hopefully I'm alive to see them. <laughs> are, are you afraid of the robots? I'm, no, no. I, I think embracing science, embracing technology uh, is essential for our long-term success. But there has to be a way to make sure that everybody takes, you know, can take advantage of that, of that success. And right now we're not there. There's huge swaths of our society that'll be completely left behind by the acceleration of these technological trends. And it, it breaks my heart, actually. I see it in slow motion happening, and I'm, I'm pretty confident it's gonna yield social strife that we can't even imagine. Huh, who's the most thoughtful person, Governor, who you talk to about these issues? You know, I, on, the, on the how to deal with this issue, uh, the guy on the public square that's been the most articulate is uh, is uh, Andrew Yang. I mean, I, I th yeah, he's pretty cool too. I, I like the fact that he 
uh, is worried about this. His solution, if, if, you, if you could, you know, if you could say in a, in a country that there is a basic income that everybody should have and you're empowering people then to take care of their, their lives and you're not, you know, you're, you're changing the, the, not the healthcare system, but the, the, the public assistance system to be able to provide that base support. That's a really interesting idea is if you pair it with an education system that gives people the skills to be able to live a purposeful life. So I don't know who, you know, he's, he's not on the technology side. He wouldn't be someone that I, that I follow. Mark Andreessen, that'd be the guy that I, I love, love reading his thoughts about this stuff. I, I love Andrew Yang, though. He was on the show earlier. And uh, have you met him before? I haven't. Governor, I like the, do you know? I, just, I, like the, I like the guy's spirit. I like his sense of humor. I like... I like his joy for life. You know, it's uh, it's refreshing. Politics shouldn't always be end is near. You know, kind of angry, faux anger. It's just it, it's hard to watch right now. And he was refreshing. He really was. And stay tuned. I think uh, uh, no matter what happens, I think he's got an interesting future ahead. Um, last couple questions, this one's inspired by Andrew Yang a little bit because he's a sports junkie too. And we spent a ton of time talking about the Knicks. He grew up a Knicks fan. Your top three athletes of all time. Give me your top three athletes of all time. This is the Jeb Bush list, top three athletes of all time. Uh, Willie Mays, he was my hero. Um, I have a Willie Mays card that he signed. Back when I was old enough where you could send a postcard Willie Mays, Candlestick Park, San Francisco, and he would sign it and send it back. I have one. Um, I think he was the best baseball player ever. Uh, Tiger Woods, I would put in that category, uh, and Michael Jordan. I'm, I'm, I'm in the old school generation, not the new, new school, so sorry, LeBron. Yeah, yeah, you left out some goodies there. I didn't hear Tom Brady. And I, and, I, and I didn't hear Ali, and I didn't hear Jim Brown. Okay, if you, if you had six, I'd, <laughs> I would have put all, those, all them in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Ali, definitely. But I'm not replacing him with the three I picked. <laughs> That's fair. Hey, uh, uh, a final question. Um, what would surprise people to learn about you? Those people who think they know you, uh, reasonably well, who followed you, followed the family. What might surprise them to know about you or to learn about you? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I like to cook, maybe. They probably don't think I cook. Good food or not? Well, it's edible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a fancy chef, but I can, I can deliver the mail. I can, I can bring it. Well, and so, and so, if I invite myself over, <laughs> what might I? Uh, Partake in. You would, you would probably, in all likelihood, you would probably have a, um, you would probably have a salad with, with chicken, with, uh, you know what you'd have? You'd have Jamaican rub on the chicken to honor your parents. Oh, oh, you know I like that. Oh, you know I like that. You know I'd be very happy. Uh, I'd be very happy with that. That'd be good. That'd be good. We, we we eat healthy in the Bush family. We don't we don't uh, we don't eat food that uh, that takes uh, requires you know ten mile walks afterwards. That's uh, you were better than me. I've remained committed to uh, Miami cuisine all the way through. So I'm a uh, I'm a uh, um, beefsteak empanizado and uh, you know all the other kind of uh, tostones. Yeah, there you go. All the other goodies that uh, uh, that we have down there. Um, 
Yeah. Well, you come, you come, you come back home, and we'll we'll go over to uh, uh, to a new restaurant that that serves arepas. Oh, the Venezuelan arepas. They're like a thousand calories uh, an arepa, but <laughs> it's worth eating. I love it. I'll order two. I'll order two for uh, for sure. Um, Governor, I really appreciate you coming on, and I hope that you'll uh, do it again. I um. Uh, I really value having you as, as, I hope you'll allow me to say, as kind of part of the Aussie family. And, uh, and I hope you'll, hope you'll stay close to us in the show. Thank you, Carlos. Continued success, my friend. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know they can find us on iTunes and the iHeartRadio podcast app. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.